0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 93, March to Europe. As always, first, I want to thank our new supporters, Nikola Petrovsky, Desai Link, Joel Roche, and Sven Gur. And it was great meeting you, Sven, meeting you recently. Also, great, uh, well, soon I'll be meeting Nikola. And uh, thanks for Bonnie, Ellis, David, and family, all the other listeners I've gotten to meet recently. Uh, I guess it's summertime as everyone's traveling, and I've gotten to meet a ton of you passing through Sofia, and it has been such a pleasure. I always love doing it. So, As always, anyone who's coming into Sofia, reach out. Uh, I'd always love to grab a coffee, a beer, dinner, whatever, show you around the city. It's it's always just a lot of fun. So thanks a lot to everyone there. Now last time, a lot happened. The Peace of Westphalia ended the Thirty Years' War and set in motion a new idea of what a nation-state could be. The Cossacks rose up, beginning a massive series of wars which would see the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth devastated, and really brought down as a European power. Moldavia's great ambitions were brought down themselves by the loss to Wallachia, and the great dream of Transylvania to expand was also cut down when they were invaded and brought to heel by the Ottomans after attempting to exert their independence and expand their territory. The Cretan War dragged on, though the Ottomans did manage to break the blockade of Constantinople put in by the Venetians. Most importantly, throughout all, Koprulu Mehmed Pasha became an effective dictator as Grand Vizier, putting down yet another Abaza rebellion, and finally re-exerting Ottoman power in the Balkans. We ended the last episode with his death and succession by his son, Koprulu Fazad, Fazel Ahmed Pasha. Hope I got that pronunciation right. Now there are a few questions hanging in the air. What will happen to the Venetian war over Crete? Will things escalate against the Habsburgs over the clashes in Transylvania? And can Fazel continue? the kind of good governance that his father established, especially as the young Sultan Mehmed IV is now 19 years old and perhaps ready to exert himself on the royal stage. The first major event is war with Austria. That re-exertion of Ottoman power in Transylvania had set the two powers on a collision course, leading the Emperor Leopold to send an army. Meanwhile, the Austrian Ban of Croatia had been raiding Ottoman territories to help bring about a war, intent on using that war to liberate Croatia and Hungary. Well, they got what they wanted. In 1663, a 100,000-strong Ottoman army, led by the Grand Vizier Fasel himself, and set about and immediately began conquering. Little wonder, despite having essentially started the war, the Austrians only had about 28,000 soldiers ready to meet the Ottoman threat. Leopold called on the members of the Holy Roman Empire to send soldiers to his aid. By doing so, he more than doubled his force, but, well, double 28,000 is still quite a bit less than 100,000. Thus, the Austrians ended up with a force divided into three, both physically and and in terms of their plans on how to conduct the war. One 17,000-man strong Hungarian-Croatian force made for the Ottoman bridgehead at Osijek. Destroying that bridge cut off the Ottoman retreat and caused havoc in their supply lines. Their commander managed to then take several fortresses and destroy the bridge before being forced to retreat as the main Ottoman army advanced. He pulled back, and the Ottomans advanced to a newly built fortress called Novi Zrin, they laid siege as the nearby Habsburg army waited to see what would happen. After a few weeks, Ottoman sappers detonated explosives beneath the walls, and that was that. The city was sacked, and the Ottoman army advanced to the Hungarian town of Saint Gothard. The Austrians. Needed to prevent the Ottomans from crossing the River Raba, the last major obstacle between them and Vienna. Now the Ottomans successfully crossed the river, but were then surprised by a Habsburg attack. This caused Ottoman soldiers to flee back towards the river, drowning many. The Ottomans took somewhere between sixteen and twenty-two thousand casualties and were now unable to cross the river and continue their advance forcing them to abandon the campaign. The Austrians now had the chance to advance and retake Hungary, but Emperor Leopold instead decided on a quick peace so he could prepare to fight France instead. Ottoman control over Transylvania was reaffirmed and the Habsburgs could turn their attention back to the West. The Ottomans, for their part, could turn their attention back to Venice and Crete, which they did. The next year, 1665, the Ottomans sent 9,000 reinforcements to Crete. They also proposed peace with the Venetians, if they could receive Crete as a part of the deal, but this was rejected. Then, in 1666, the Venetians made another attempt to retake the Cretan city of Canaea, but this failed. The war was again turning in the Ottomans' favor, as the same year the Grand Vizier himself came with yet more reinforcements. But the siege dragged on into its 19th year, as the year 1667 dawned. Venice received more ships and men from France and Savoy... The many states aiding them in the war disagreed strongly amongst themselves, making their overall operations far less effective than they might have been. Finally, in 1668, the Venetians won a naval victory, but it did little to change the overall situation for them. The war and the siege of Candia, which was really at the heart of that war, well, they were both now in the final phases. The army led by the Grand Vizier made assault after assault, but to no avail. By 1668, the Venetians were hoping to make a far more favorable peace. They were getting more reinforcements from Western Europe, and the Ottomans were facing their own internal troubles. Well, as a result, the Ottomans were willing to let Venice keep half of Crete. But the Venetians again rejected the offer. French reinforcements soon reached Candia, boosting the city's poor morale. Unsurprising, after about two decades of siege. At this point, they made the the kind of new reinforcements made an attack on Ottoman forces, which was initially successful before ultimately being bloodily pushed back. Now they attacked the Ottomans again, but this time using their fleet off the coast to bombard the Ottoman lines. However, the Ottoman army. No surprise, again, after 20 years, was very well dug in and had built a massive network of trenches, and so the naval bombardment did little damage. Still, this began to feel like a moment out of the First World War as opposed to a moment out of the mid-17th century with all these soldiers facing massive cannon bombardments in trenches surrounding a city. Still, the overall failure of this counterattack frustrated the French reinforcements, and they soon decided to leave. The Ottomans, for their part, kept attacking, though they kept getting pushed back. Finally, on the 5th of September, 1669, Candia surrendered. Venice hadn't even been consulted, the city had just had enough. Enough. Over 100,000 Ottomans and nearly 30,000 Venetians had died in the 21 years of siege, the longest in human history up to that point. And, well, to this point, that record has only been broken once. Peace was finally negotiated. Venice could keep a few islands, some fortresses off the coast of Crete, and their possessions in Dalmatia, where not much happened after the first two years of the war, as you'll recall. Venice had controlled Crete for four and a half centuries, and its conquest brought the Ottomans to their greatest territorial extent. Venice was for now more of a shadow of its former self. Though the Ottomans for their part were pretty bloody and bruised as well, but The Koprulu era was bringing victories. That same year, after extensive negotiations, that new Cossack state agreed to become an Ottoman vassal, further expanding their territories and their kind of reign of influence. Quick story about what exactly happened there, though. Essentially, Russia and Poland agreed to divide the Cossack state along the Dnieper River and this portion given to Poland was upset about this and sought Ottoman aid in order to exert their independence, agreeing to become an Ottoman vassal as a part of that deal. Also, during the years following peace with the Habsburgs, they faced uprisings in their Hungarian territories. Hungarian and Croatian magnates were angry over several things. First, that With the decline of their control over the Holy Roman Empire following the Peace of Westphalia, the Habsburgs had decided to centralize control over the Austrian Empire that they also ruled. Second, as they've shown time and time again, the Habsburg emperors were far more interested in boosting their power and control elsewhere in Europe than in bothering to fight the Ottomans in order to liberate Hungarian or Croatian territories. The nobles involved in this uprising sought aid from every single neighboring state, ironically enough, including the Ottomans. For them, ultimately, an independent Hungary was most important, even if it were an Ottoman vassal state. Their plotting went on for years, with Emperor Leopold knowing, but not really taking the whole thing that seriously, until this whole rebellion was brutally put down in 1670 after pamphlets calling for an Ottoman invasion, again, really, (laughs) were circulated, and the Habsburgs finally started taking the whole situation seriously. As a result of this put-down, Protestantism was suppressed, and Hungarian self-rule, which had existed to an extent within the Austrian Empire, was eliminated entirely. Also during this time, Following the Cossacks becoming Ottoman vassals, there was more fighting between the Cossacks, the Tatars, and the Poles. In 1670, the Cossacks and the Tatars attempted to gain control over most of what's now Ukraine from the Poles, but they were defeated. They then requested aid from the Ottomans, who granted it. In August 1672, the Grand Vizier arrived at the head of an 80,000-strong Ottoman army, quickly taking the fortress of kaminec Podolski and laying siege to Lwau, or Lviv as it's called today. I'll try to include a photo of Kamyonets Podolski from uh, my time there many, many, many years ago. It's a very cool fortress city in western Ukraine. The Poles, for their part, have been able to handle the Tatars and the Cossacks just fine, but they were very unprepared to face a full Ottoman army. Knowing this, they quickly signed the Treaty of Bukhac, which gave territory to the Ottomans and some to the Cossacks, in addition to agreeing to pay annual tribute. However, the Parliament of the Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania refused to ratify the treaty, just considering it beyond the pale, and they wouldn't do it, and so the war resumed again in the spring of 1673. This time, though, the Poles had gathered a proper army, and they were ready to face the Ottomans. They won several battles, including the Battle of Chotin, advancing into Moldavia, and leading the Voivoda of Moldavia to change sides and actually join the Poles against the Ottomans. No surprise then, the whole situation was looking pretty bad from the Ottoman perspective. The next year, 1674, the Polish parliament, though, decided to be a little cheap and not pay or raise more soldiers. Unpaid men then began to desert the army. But despite this, the Poles still recaptured several fortresses during that year, but their advance slowed a bit because of the setback. The year after, Ottoman reinforcements headed to Lviv, and their army was ambushed by the Poles while traveling through a ravine and took substantial casualties. Still, another Ottoman Tatar force was making progress, taking the fortress of Trembolia as summer turned into autumn. In 1676, another Ottoman force invaded and ended laying siege to a Polish camp with the army inside. As the months dragged on and the Ottomans took substantial losses, both sides finally agreed to peace. The resulting treaty was basically the same as the previously agreed treaty that the Polish parliament had rejected, with the exception being that the Poles were not going to pay tribute to the Ottomans, and the Poles were going to lose about one-third less territory than before. But, despite this better treaty, once again the Polish parliament refused to ratify it. Also that year saw the death of Fazl Ahmed Pasha, that uh, son of the previous Koprulu Pasha, due to complications from heavy drinking. Remember, the Ottomans were Muslims, but not always that serious about their religion. And he was succeeded by his son-in-law Kara Mustafa Pasha, who pay attention to because he will be a very important person in our story. Well, anyway, so Russia was very upset over Ottoman expansion into this region, which led to an outbreak of war between Russia and the Ottomans in 1676. In 1677, the Ottoman army advanced towards the Cossack capital of Chihirin. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's a Tricky, tricky word, but the Cossack capital, all you need to know. But the Ottomans were outmaneuvered by the Russians and lost 20,000 men after failing to attempt to take the city. The next year, their army returned with new leadership and new reinforcements to lay siege to that same uh, Cossack capital. The Russians were able to reinforce the city from the river, it was sitting alongside a river, but they were unable to mount a successful attack on the Ottoman position. Soon the Ottomans broke through, and Russian soldiers retreated across the river. The Ottomans were now able to secure the right bank of the River Dnieper, though they were hesitant to advance further and attack Kiev itself. With such an enormous river between them, if you've never seen the Dnieper, it's a, it looks like a lake. I mean, it's a very very wide river. Basically, this led to the war kind of grinding to a stalemate for the final three years. There were some attacks by the Tatars, but. Ultimately, the Dnieper River border that was established during the war was settled on as the new Russian-Ottoman border. This was confirmed in the 1681 Treaty of Bakhtasarai. It had many different provisions about who could settle where, who could fish in this river or that river, but what was most important is that it set a 20-year truce between the sides and established the Dnieper as the official border. But, just as peace was coming to this region following nine years of war with either the Poles or the Russians, war was coming to another region of the Ottoman borders. The Ottoman-Austrian border in this case. Now, remember when I mentioned that for many Protestant Hungarians, an independent Hungary as an Ottoman vassal was preferable to domination by the Catholic Habsburgs? Well, that hasn't really changed. For years prior to this moment, Emperor Leopold has been attempting to crush Protestantism. Despite the agreements set out in the Peace of Westphalia, which in theory should have given the Hungarians religious liberty, well, in 1681, there was another Hungarian uprising, similar to the one ten years previously, and again supported by the Ottomans. They promised the leader of this uprising that if it were successful, he could be king of Upper Hungary and... Of Vienna, hopefully. Of course, though, as an Ottoman vassal. Frankly, this was the perfect chance for the Ottomans to make a serious push at Vienna, for the first time since 1529. Vienna had been ravaged by plague for years. The Habsburgs were facing internal divisions and strife, and they had a local leader backing them up. The Ottomans, that is. But the Ottomans didn't send an army right away. 1681 saw some fighting between the Hungarian rebels and the Habsburgs, but when their forces crossed the border into Ottoman Hungary, well, the Habsburg forces, the Ottomans now had a proper reason to start a full war. So, war it was. The Ottomans spent winter of 1681 mobilizing a massive army with all the equipment it would need to conquer Vienna. But the Ottomans faced the same problem they always did. The march from Constantinople to Vienna took months. And it was impossible to fit an army mobilization, plus that march and the conquest of a city, well, a city as substantial and well-defended as Vienna, into a single campaign season. But then the harsh Austrian winter was a very deadly adversary, so what were they supposed to do? Well, their answer was to spend more than a year and a half mobilizing after they declared war in August of 1682. But even with a year and a half of mobilizing, for the reasons I just mentioned, the army couldn't depart until this next spring. So basically the Austrians had a lot of time to prepare their defenses. Leopold sought to obtain an alliance with Poland in an agreement that said that either power would assist the other if their capitals were attacked. Because remember, at this point, the Austrians don't know the Ottomans are coming for Vienna. They know a massive army is mobilizing and they know it's coming roughly in their direction, but the Ottomans are purposely hiding what the target is going to be. Even their own soldiers don't yet know where they're going. Emperor Leopold was also able to obtain alliances with the Pope and with the Venetians, as well as calling up soldiers from the Holy Roman Empire. In short, Basically, everything was going right for him in terms of preparation. Every power he could have reasonably had on his side was on his side. But the Ottomans were also very busy during this period. Besides mobilizing their forces, they were also building out the infrastructure on the road between them and their target. Their two previous attempts to take Vienna and myriad other wars along the Habsburg border had taught them that logistics would likely be their greatest challenge during the coming campaign. On March the 31st, 1683, the court in Vienna received a second sort of declaration of war. The Ottoman army, nearly 150,000 strong, from what I can tell, the largest army the Ottomans have ever assembled began the slow and arduous march to Vienna. As they marched, they were joined by additional forces from Transylvania, Wallachia, Moldavia, a Hungarian force under their their leader Imre Tokoli, and about 40,000 Tatars, swelling their ranks even more. The highly mobile Tatars were the first to reach Vienna on July the 7th, a week ahead of the main force. Even this smaller army was enough to completely outclass the local Austrian forces and pressure Emperor Leopold to withdraw and lead the efforts to gather a relief force from his allies outside of his capital. So, that was the plan. Vienna just had to hold out until that relief force could come and save it. The walls were nearly 200 feet or 61 meters high, And on top of them was a very impressive set of artillery. But defending all this were only about 11,000 soldiers and 5,000 volunteers. But whether they were ready or not, on July the 14th, the siege began. And that's where I'm going to end things this time. I know this is a bit of a short episode, but it dearly didn't make sense to cover the full Battle of Vienna here. It's a long story, so I had to kind of cut it off at this moment. Next time, then, we'll see whether the Ottoman army, the Ottoman Empire as well, flush with new territories, with new winnings, can finally defeat their Habsburg rivals, who, remember, were still reeling from that brutal Thirty Years' War. But with European powers mobilizing against the Ottomans, well, they haven't seen this kind of opposition in decades. And as a result, Bulgarians are soon going to make themselves felt on the European stage once again. So don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And as always, consider pledging on Patreon if you can. Thanks everyone, and I'll catch you in the next one.